right, good morning, everybody. We're going to get uh, started here this morning on this rainy Sunday. Actually, thankful for the rain. We needed this. This ought to catch us up on all the all the rain that we were behind. Uh, so, uh, yeah, everything's going to grow like crazy. So, Let's open up with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll get things started here with our study this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the rain. We thank you for your provision for us and, and uh, just uh, the, how we needed it, and you brought the rain. And so, Father, we're just uh, very thankful for all that you do for us. Lord, we just pray that you would help us as we look into your word today, uh, during the Sunday school hour here, and then also in the service to follow. We just pray that you would teach us what you want us to, to learn today, and we would glorify you and worship you. And we are just uh, thankful for all that you do for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week, we kind of broke off with our study of Revelation. Uh, we, were, we were talking about uh, how uh, in Daniel 12, it seems to bring about the possibility that there is a 75-day interval uh, between the, the kind of the final battle of, battle of Armageddon uh, at the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Uh, and so we were talking about, you know, the possibility of that uh, and, and what some of the things that possibly happened during that time. And that's kind of where we, we pretty much finished that discussion uh, and, and we were just getting to the end of it. And there's kind of one more thing that I really kind of wanted to, uh, to talk about. And that was who goes into... The millennial kingdom. I mean, obviously, all believers that are alive at the time, uh, you know, of the, of the second coming do. But is that it? And, and and there there are two different mindsets, even amongst conservative Christians, over that. And I know that's not a shocker because most of what we've seen, there's there's different ideas about. But uh, you know, some believe that anyone who was alive during the time of the tribulation and did not take the mark of the beast, uh, you know, some people believe that all the, you know, all those people, the only one that won't take the mark of the beast essentially will be believers, okay? People who've gotten saved, at, you know, during the tribulation uh, and will not take the mark of the beast. Others believe that at least the door is open for the possibility that that some non-believers will not take the mark of the beast during the tribulation period. They won't necessarily become believers during the period, but they will, you know, they'll, they'll know enough that something's not right about the Antichrist and they won't take the mark of the beast. So those are the, the two different opinions. The problem is, you know, th there's not a lot of, uh, of Scripture to kind of back up either one. The Bible doesn't really specifically spell out in any one place, hey, these are all the people that are going to go into the millennium. It, it just doesn't come right out and say that, uh, other than, than we know that believers will. So, you know, people are left with kind of uh, trying to take other Bible passages and, and you know, see if that can be used to, to, to point one way or the other. Um, we've talked, I've, I've used pretty heavily during this study Two, uh, two particular commentaries, the, the Baker Exegetical Commentary by Grant Osborne, who was a, a real legendary uh, old te or a New Testament scholar who's now passed on, and the, the New American Commentary by Paige Patterson. Uh, and I've used 
two or three others also, but those have been the two that, that I've kind of leaned on the heaviest. It's it, it, very interesting that, that they have two completely different opinions on this, as you would expect. You know, that's just kind of the way this, this works. Uh, you know, and, and Patterson is of the opinion that only believers will go into the millennial kingdom. Osborne is of the, of the opinion that, you know, non-believers who do not take the mark of the beast will go into the millennial kingdom. But neither one of them offers a very, you know, complex argument for their case. Uh, the, the one thing that, that, that Patterson discusses that is the closest thing we have to pointing to something is the passage we were talking about last week in Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Turn back to Matthew chapter 25. We looked at this a little last week in a different context, uh, talking about the judgment that's taking place here and who is being judged. Um, but in regard to this, uh, it's verses 31 through 46 is, the, is the, the entirety of the passage. But I don't want to necessarily read the whole thing again. I want to look at start at verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, we discussed last week, there's, there's numerous different opinions over who is the sheep, who is the goats, and we saw that they are judged on their treatment of his brethren and who, is, who are his brother. Some people believe it's Christians, other people believe it's, it's the Jews. Uh, you know, so, yeah, we, we talked about that last week. But in regards to who will go into the millennial kingdom, it has ramifications. Because if this, uh, you know, he, he said, I'm going to put the sheep on, on, on my right and the goats on my left, and only the sheep go into the millennial kingdom. If the sheep are only believers, Okay, and this is at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. If, if that is the timing of this, and that's one of the things we discuss, not everybody agrees with that timing. Some people think this is the second coming, you know, that's being spoken of there, and it's, this is the beginning of the millennial kingdom. If that's the case, then it seems to suggest that only believers go into the millennial kingdom. Okay, that, that only the sheep and the believers are the sheep. Others look at, as you get toward the end of the passage, he starts talking about kind of enter into kind of the you know, eternal life. Uh, yeah, it looks like he's maybe talking about eternal life. Well, if that is the case, then the timing of this may not be the, the beginning of the millennium. And that's why there's a debate. Because when you see what Jesus says over that whole passage, there's a great bit, deal of debate over what the timing is of what he's talking about. Is he kind of telescoping a whole bunch of stuff into one saying? You know, kind of beginning with the second coming and then ending with the eternal order, which we see in, in, in the scripture a lot, where a lot of territory will get telescoped into a very small amount of time. So there are some scholars that believe that. Others believe, no, he is talking about this, this judgment takes place at the beginning of the millennial kingdom and that's where all this takes place, and so only believers will go into the millennial kingdom. 
So those are the two opinions. I, I just kind of wanted to bring that up because that's one of the questions I think we had back a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, who goes into the, the millennial kingdom? The reality is we don't know for sure. It, you know, there's no place where it, it just spells it out and says it clearly. We just don't know. Uh, so there's a possibility that it is only believers uh, and, and, you know, and we'll talk about something else in regards to that here in a second. Or there's a possibility that it could be believers plus a certain amount of unbelievers who, you know, did not take the mark of the beast during the, the tribulation. So those are the two possibilities. Uh, and, and there's, like I said, there's things that, that each side kind of points to as their, as their kind of uh, positions. Uh, th- those who believe that, uh, that non-believers go in, they talk about how the Bible tells us that, that you know, Jesus will judge the nations, and, and, you know, who are the nations, they argue. Well, you know, it, usually in the Bible, when it's talking about the nations, that can also be translated the Gentiles, it's talking about non-believers. So, you know, that, those, those people argue, well, non-believers go in, others argue with, with uh, you know, with what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, and they say, no, only believers go in. For my opinion, this is just my opinion after reading this, you know, I honestly don't really lean very far one way or the other. I just kind of take a pass on this one. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. If I'm going to lean one way or another, I would lean very slightly to only believers going into the millennial kingdom. That seems to have slightly better argument but like I said, I, 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 I have, after reading the arguments, you know, none of them are really a knockdown, drag out, you know, win as far as I'm concerned. So there, there's there's a lot of, uh, lo- and, and you know, you can see why there's a lot of disagreement over this issue. Now, but interestingly enough, it's not something that is like people don't, you know, really like getting hot, heated debates over this. I think most people realize there's a lot of kind of ambiguity here. And they don't get into, you know, real hot uh, uh, debates over this particular issue. Now, if only believers go in, that presents another problem, a seeming problem. There's been so much destruction on the face of the earth during the tribulation, so many people being killed. Who will populate, you know, or really, who will repopulate the millennial kingdom for a thousand years? Is it only going to be a a small amount of people in the millennial kingdom? Will the whole world be, you know, populated by, you know, thousands or tens of thousands and that's it? You know, uh, people, you know, these are human beings who have not died, you know, they, 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 they live into the millennial kingdom. Do they live for all thousand years? Is death done away with? Because if death isn't done away with, they're going to die sooner or later going into that millennial kingdom, and it isn't going to take real long until they're all going to be gone. Well, then who's going to repopulate the millennial kingdom? Are they going to have children in the millennial kingdom? Normal lives? See, these are all some of the questions that we, a lot of times we don't really think through when we kind of start talking about the millennial kingdom. 
it does seem that there are nor, you know, completely normal lives going on during the millennial kingdom. You know, the Bible talks about the nations, how the nations will flood into Jerusalem. You know, people will come to, to hear the, the lamb, the teaching of the lamb, uh, you know, to, to have the justice of the lamb. He will carry out justice, uh, you know, during the millennial kingdom, uh, you know, will kind of keep, it's not that sin will not happen, but he will keep sin from having any, the, the effect that it currently has. People who go into it with, uh, you know, who, who have never died, have never gotten, you know, glorified bodies, anything like that, they are still going to have a sin nature. And we see that at the end of the, of the kingdom because there is a rebellion that we're going to talk about here just shortly that's led by Satan. So it's obvious that people have a sin nature. So it brings about questions over how does, how does this work? And, and also we know that there's going to be glorified people uh, you know, th- that will be there. People who were in heaven with Christ and have come back with him to the earth you know, and will be there during the millennial kingdom. Well, they're not going to have children. You know, and, and, and so uh, it brings about a question of who populates the millennial kingdom, especially if only believers uh, go in. I cannot answer the question for you of, of, of do they live throughout the entire millennial kingdom? I have no idea. Um, I think people probably die during the kingdom, but I don't, I don't know that for sure. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. I, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute, uh, you know, because I think it's clear that there are, other, there are other inhabitable places on the earth, and, and, and well, you, you guys were a long ways away last week, uh, the, you know, in London, you, you probably weren't listening to the Sunday school class. Um, one of the things we talked about was one of the, the possibilities for the 75-day interval is the cleanup of everything. Uh, you know, th- that it, Daniel seems to suggest that there's 75 days be- before the start of the millennial kingdom, uh, and, and, you know, one of the possibilities that people bring up is the possibility of cleaning things up, you know, trying to make things right. Um, but again, that's, no one knows that for sure. Let me read something to you from, from uh, the New American Commentary about this whole idea of, pop- of repopulating uh, the millennial kingdom. Uh, and we read this back at, 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 man, like two years ago when we first started this study. Um, you know, and we read it in the context then of the different arguments for, for you know, like the, the different rapture positions and things like that. And this was actually one of the, the arguments for uh, uh, a pre-tribulational rapture. Um, but, but it, you know, I'll just read it in in regards to this idea of populating the the millennial kingdom. It says, an even more comprehensive problem arises if a post-tribulational rapture is envisioned. The New Testament is clear that when Christ is revealed and Christians are caught up to him, both those who sleep in Jesus and those alive at his coming will be glorified. In other words, they'll have new bodies. They, they, They will not have earthly sinful bodies anymore, so they're not gonna be having children. Okay, they, they, that they're, they're past that. Um, as so far as it's possible to know, Jesus seems to indicate that glorified or 
or resurrected bodies, while infinitely superior to sin-ravaged physical bodies, will not have the capacity for reproductive acts or results. Such would not be needed in the heavenly kingdom. Therefore, if every true believer is glorified at the post-tribulational rapture, and if only believers enter the millennium, how is the millennial, millennial kingdom repopulated? Following the devastating results of the Great Tribulation with the decimation of the largest part of the world's population, repopulation during the millennium is essential. In fact, when Satan is released at the conclusion of the millennium for a short time, he has an immediate following. How is this possible if the millennial kingdom consists only of glorified believers? How is it possible for him to have a following? In contrast, pre-tribulationalism easily accounts for these events. The church is caught up to Christ and glorified at the beginning of the tribulation. During the tribulation, 144,000 Jews and a considerable number of Gentiles come to faith. Those not martyred by the man of sin uh, will be alive, living in their physical, though fallen, bodies at the Lord's return, and they will become the initial inhabitants of the kingdom age. Since they uh, are in their... uh, in their as yet unglorified bodies, they can and do repopulate the earth during the millennium. Of course, their progeny must also repent and exercise faith in Christ to be saved. Though all will conf- uh, confirm outwardly to the millennial reign of Christ, the loosing of Satan at the conclusion of the millennium will provide opportunity for those whose hearts are in rebellion to manifest themselves as unbelievers. So that is one of the explanations. And as I said, kind of the other one would be uh, for those who believe that non-believers go into the millennium, they believe that they also repopulate, uh, you know, the millennial kingdom. So, you know, the millennial kingdom will be repopulated by people, you know, whether, you know, by one, you know, particular way or the other, there will be people who are living in their fallen, normal bodies at the end of the tribulation and they will go into the millennial kingdom. It will not all be just glorified people. You know, there will be fallen people go into the millennial kingdom, whether they are saved or whether they are unsaved. Uh, And they will, over the course of a thousand years, will repopulate the kingdom. People will be living normal lives, will be having children. Uh, You know, governments will exist. Uh, The Bible talks about the nations coming to Jerusalem, uh, you know, uh, like I said, to see the Lamb and, and to hear the teaching of the Lamb and have him, uh, you know, judge between things. And so, uh, you know, there will be life going on in the millennial kingdom. It will be a, a, a essentially a, a return to kind of an Edenic state, uh, almost like an Eden, not sinless, but with Christ as its head and him kind of keeping justice at all times on the earth, adjudicating justice at all times. It will essentially be the, the, the best, the, the most perfect that the world can ever get, you know, since sin has gotten into place, since sin has happened. Now, there's one step better, of course, and that's the total elimination of sin, and that comes with the eternal order that will follow after all of this. But for a thousand years, the earth will be the best that it could possibly be because at its head, leading it will be Christ. You know, leading, leading the, 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 the government essentially of the earth. 
So, you know, that's kind of the end of our discussion of what the millennial kingdom will be like and what, you know, both the Old and New Testament say about what the millennial kingdom will be like. Now, that leads us back to Revelation chapter 20 for today. We're going to look at Revelation cha- the rest of Le- Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 7 and going through verse 15. We're going to take this in two steps, one verses 7 through 10, uh, and then verses 11 through 15, and look at the, at the variety of things that take place uh, in those passages. So let's Let's begin by reading Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. It says, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them uh, for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of of burning uh, sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right, let's start there in verses 7 through 10. The first thing that we see here is, he says, at the end of the millennial kingdom. Uh, You know, this, this is important because of the various different views of exactly kind of you know, what is happening here, uh, this is a difficult statement for kind of everything except for a premillennial position. This is difficult for the amillennialists because, you know, they, they don't have a really good answer for what it means at, you know, the end of the millennial kingdom. You know, in their mind, Christ is reigning in heaven. Uh, you know, and th- their argument for this passage is, well, you know, since the time of, of Jesus' resurrection and the, and the age of the church, um, you know, Satan hasn't had the same ability to fool the Gentiles that he had before. Well, you know, that may be true, but that doesn't really answer this question. If you're talking about, you know, the, 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 the end of the kingdom, he's going to be released to go out and, and you know, kind of start basically turning people away from Christ again. How do you explain the fact that that hasn't happened for those thousand years if you're an amillennialist? You know, people are obviously not all believing in Christ. People are obviously turning away from Christ. Uh, Satan is obviously still at work in the world around us today. There's no good argument for that. You know, so the, this, this, you know, the, the fact that says that there is a... a an end, a beginning and an end to the thousand-year kingdom is actually an argument for a, a premillennial position. That there is a real, true thousand-year reign on earth of Jesus Christ. It has a beginning, it has an end. And it will have an effect. When it begins, he'll defeat Satan and, and, and the Antichrist. He will lock Satan away for a thousand years. When it ends, Satan will be loosed and again, he will start having an effect on the world. That fits a premillennial position. It does not fit a, an amillennialist position very well. So, you know, it, it's important that it starts out kind of with that, set, that, that, that phrase, when the thousand years are over. Now, Satan is released. The first question that brings about is why. 
Why release Satan at the end of the thousand years? Well, again, we're, we're left without a, a clear, spelled-out answer. You know, God didn't choose to, to you know, let us in on that. Uh, a couple things have been speculated on. One is it gives all of mankind a chance to freely make a choice, you know, of whether or not they will follow Christ. Uh, you know, essentially, and in, in, in we've talked about this different ways, the millennial kingdom, uh, you know, is essentially, uh, uh, you know, the, the effects that the fall from grace had at the beginning, of, you know, of the human race and the loss of Eden. And then you have all the problems of mankind through all the years. And essentially, the, the millennial kingdom is kind of a, a way of moving mankind back toward Eden, if you will. Uh, you know, and, and Christ reigning on the, the throne. So some say, well, what is going on here is just like Adam and Eve had to make a choice, whether they would follow Christ. And so, so you know, God said, don't eat of a tree. Nothing wrong with a tree. The tree was perfectly fine, but it belonged to God. And God said, you can't have that tree. And if you take of that tree, you know, you'll commit sin. You'll, you'll spiritually die if you take of that tree. And they did, you know, and we all know the story. So some look at this and they say, well, this is God giving the people who, you know, lived under the reign of Christ for a thousand years, they now have to make a choice, okay? And I think there's, there's probably truth to that, okay? There's probably a little bit more to it, though, than that, you know. And it, let me get to the end of this and then I'll hit your question because it may answer your question. Um, the other possibility that, that some scholars stress is it also shows the absolute guilt of mankind. It, it shows the sin nature of mankind. It, isn't it amazing, and this is one of the things that I've heard you know, so many people through the years talk about this. You can have Jesus reigning on the throne for a thousand years. You can, you can have as close to perfection as, as, as it can get. You know, the, the, the earth, it, you know, is essentially, you know, put back in, in, in place of what it, it should have been, almost an Eden-like place. It produces more than it's ever produced. It's, it's purer and cleaner than it has been since Eden. The animals don't fight. They, you know, we, 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 again, we've talked several times about some of those descriptions, the lion and the lamb and, and, and the child playing by a cobra's den and things like that. And, and there's perfect safety in all of that. People are no longer at war with, with one another. The weapons have all been beating, beaten into plowshares. You know, you know, Christ is keeping, you know, as, as close as perfection can get with fallen people on the earth he is keeping that in, in place with his reign. Why would anybody not want that? How is it even possible that anybody would make a choice other than that? But yet they do. And by enormous numbers. And, and what many you know, scholars, what many theologians kind of point to when it comes to this is it shows the depravity of mankind. How totally fallen we really are. Uh, you know, that, that we would choose rebellion and choose Satan 
over the perfection you know, that we've seen for a thousand years. So those are the two general answers that are given to this. And honestly, I think they're both true. Now, God may have a completely other reason on top of all that that, that we don't know, okay, for why he chose to do it this way. Like I said, he doesn't just come right out and say, hey, by the way, the reason I'm going to release Satan is this. He doesn't do that. But in the events that we see following the release of Satan, it, you know, we kind of get our clues of what this could possibly mean. And it, people have to make a choice. You know, mankind has to make a choice. God wants people to freely choose to, to love him and follow him and worship him. We've talked about this a little bit before. We've talked about it many times in other different classes. But, you know, you cannot coerce love. Can't make people love you. That's not how things work. That's not real love. You put a gun to somebody's head and say, tell me you love me, they'll probably tell you that they love you. But they, they won't really love you. And God wants his creatures to love him and worship him. Because he deserves their love and worship, not because he's made them love them and worship them. You know, and, and, and so, you know, I think there is that element of free choice here that God wants humanity to, to, to have to make a choice. And he's shown them every reason why they should choose him. But yet some, you know, they want their own way. They want, they want to, you know, they don't, you know, if we try to put ourselves inside their minds, and obviously we can't completely do that, but we do know how people think, and, and we like our own way. We like our own, our, we like our freedom. We like to be able to say, this is what I'm going to do, and I don't want anybody telling me to do it. Tell me you don't all feel like that sometimes. You know, let's be honest. I don't like anybody telling me what to do. You know, even if it's God. And, and so I think there is part of that at play here, and then there's part of, you know, also showing just how deeply the effect of the fall has had on mankind, that we do have a sinful nature. It is not possible for anyone to live without sin. You know, and, and some during the millennium will choose Christ and put their faith in him, others will not. And that's as clear as, as can be from this passage. We know that for sure. We don't know the reasons necessarily, but we know for certain some put their faith in Christ and some do not. Martyrs, yeah, yep, yep. Sure. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. 
Sure. Yep. Hold, hold on to that. Hold, we'll come back to that here shortly. Yeah. But no, that, that is kind of the position of, of, you know, when people talk about that, it, it's like, you know, yes. They're, and I don't know if all the people are hidden in the fact that they don't believe. Maybe some people are just outwardly unbelieving. But certainly it reveals the true state of the hearts of all people. You know, the, the, the state of their hearts are going to be revealed by this because they now are able to choose between Christ and Satan. You know, and, and so, and we see that, that, you know, a lot of them make the wrong choice. Yeah. Doreen, you did. <laughs> That's one, one opinion on it, yeah. Well, pe people who believe that nobody but believers go into the kingdom, they believe that this is the children and the, the multiple generations that will be born over a thousand years. So these are all people, well, they are not necessarily believers. They're people who were born to believers. This is the children of the people who, yeah, those, and again, that gets to those two different things that we talked about at the beginning, people who think that unbelievers also go into the kingdom well you know you're you're going to have unbelievers there yeah 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 yep exactly yeah and and, and those are the two different kind of ways of looking at it the people who believe unbelievers go in a lot of them are the ones that believe the, you know they there's no death so they believe that the unbelievers are uh, go into it but they don't die over the course of the thousand years Plus, they're also having children, and, and that's where you get the, the unbelievers here at the end. People who believe that only believers go in, they believe that this is the progeny that's born over, well, I mean, think of the amount of people that you can have born in a thousand years. You know. Well, this is speaking, I think, of human thousand years. Uh, you know, basically, God says that, that time is for us. Time has no effect on him. He doesn't look at time the same way. So, you know, this is, I think, speaking from a human position. So, you know, uh, you can have a lot of people born in a thousand years. Think of how many people have been born, you know, I mean, it, it's 2023, you know, think about the last millennium, you know, man, that's, that's a lot of people. So it's not hard to see how you can get to the end of this time and you have an enormous population on the earth, especially... If, yeah, I mean, no wars. Think of the amount of people, the amount of, of people that war takes out. You know, d disease tamped down to almost nothing. People living much longer, longer periods of time. Earth so much more productive. I mean, it will be so much easier for the population to just explode, and the Earth will have the capacity to carry that all. You know, so there there are many ramifications to the millennium that we don't really think about. But you guys are starting to think about them. 
And that's great. That's great. You know, and, and, and so, you know, that, that helps kind of get us to that, that, that next step, uh, you know, of, of uh, you know, the numbers as you were talking about. And we'll get to that in a second here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's that? Like the disciples. Yeah. Did they get it completely? I don't know. I, I can't answer that. I, I think they probably had a better idea than we do of exactly what he was talking about. But, uh, you know, Here's one of the tricky things. Here's one of the tricky things for all of us in understanding the Bible, understanding Christian theology. You know, up until about 100, somewhere in that neighborhood, 90 to 100, is when it seems that John passed away. John was the last last of the initial apostles. He was the the last one. Well, you know, up you know for about the first hundred years there. Well, if Jesus was resurrected and went back to heaven around 30, 33, somewhere in that neighborhood. So for about 70 years, you had at least some of the apostles there who could correct things, give, you know, actual teaching on things. But the moment they were gone, you know, and, and those actual followers of Jesus were de- dead and off the scene, we, and Christianity was growing so fast, spreading all over like the Roman world, of the day, and people were coming into it with all these, you know, all their background, all their junk that they brought with them. Well, you know, then you had all kind of heresies start to, like, grow up, and the church spent a lot of its time fighting those early heresies, and that's what you read about in, in what we call the, the patristic fathers, the, the church fathers. Uh, they were the ones that, that second and third generation after the, the, the apostles. You know, Part of the problem is we don't have any, you know, the, the earliest writings we have go back to, you know, like some of them in the early or the late 100s, you know, and, and so we can't go back and, and other than the Bible, we can't go back and touch on what those apostles taught. So when they lay it out in the Bible, we have to then interpret it, you know, without like their commentary on it. Like they didn't sit around and leave commentaries on you know what what it actually meant i wish they did we do have commentaries of kind of those church fathers that came along later some of them were directly trained by the apostles polycarp was was actually trained by john so we have some of their writings and and they talk about what these different passages mean but we don't have like like john and peter and, and and paul and those guys they they you know, they were used to write scripture, but then they didn't sit down and write a bunch of commentaries on how to interpret scripture. So it, it leaves a, a, a hole in our interpretation. And, and honestly, that's why you have so many denominations. You know, that, that's why you have Catholic and, and you have Orthodox. And then when the Protestants came, you have Protestants, and of course, they split into like a million denominations, you know. And so th- that's why we have all the differences, because, you know, we have the scriptures, but we're all trying to interpret it, and we come up with different 
interpretations of what it means, and we, don't, we can't go back to, to John and say, John, what did, exactly did you mean here? Do you remember what Jesus said, and what did you think then? I wish we could do that, but we don't. And maybe John didn't get it. That's another possibility, because we know the disciples didn't always get everything, especially while they were walking around with Jesus. Now, we are told that later on, the Holy Spirit, when he descended into them, he, you know, it says he taught them all things. He brought back to them the things that Jesus had taught, and all of a sudden they started to understand them. That doesn't necessarily mean they had perfect understanding of everything. So I wish we had that. I, I, oh, man, I honestly do. I, I, some, sometimes I, I, you know, like daydream that they find like some cave in Egypt, they find like another horde of things, and it's, it's like a, a series of commentaries by, you know, by Paul and Peter or something, but that, that hasn't happened yet. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ex- yep. Yep. I, I think there's probably some truth to that. Yep. They did not fully understand everything that they were, that they were putting down. You know. It is. I mean, a lot of it is by faith. That's one of the reasons I've tried to point out to you guys during this study how many different opinions of this there are by true real believers. We have a tendency to look at people who don't agree with us on scripture all the time, and we say, oh, that, those people are terrible. They can't really be believers. That's not necessarily the case. You know, I'm talking about people who are not doubters of the Bible, who are, are you know, real true believers in Jesus Christ, and they come to very differing opinions on a lot of these things because they're just not that easy. You know, Some interpret that, that that nobody dies, though the Bible never actually says that, but that's a possibility, absolutely, yep. Um, All right, clearly Satan has two intentions here. When he's released, it it says that he does essentially two things. One, he draws the nations away. You know, that's kind of his first thing, is is he's released from his prison, he will go out to deceive the nations, in the four corners of the earth. Well, that tells us two things. One, the four corners of the earth are populated. Gets to kind of what you're talking about. People are living all over the earth. They're not all centered in Jerusalem. Jerusalem essentially is like the capital of the earth. That's where Christ is at. But people are all over the earth, okay? And Satan goes out all over the earth to to the four corners of the earth to go out and deceive the nations, deceive the people. The second thing he does is it says he gathers them together for battle. You know, uh, to gather them for battle, in number they are like the sand of the seashore. Now, when you see that, that's a phrase that's used very often in both the Old and New Testament. And essentially it means, it's just a, a, a kind of a picture way of saying innumerable. Like you can't, you, you, you can't stand out there and count them. There's so many of them, you couldn't go, oh, one, two, three, four. It, it, yeah, there's too many of them to count, is, is what it's trying to say. Yeah, it's not literally saying there are millions and millions and millions of them. It just means they're uncountable. It, it's too many to stand there and count. A, a big number is what it's looking at. That's a, it's a kind of a figurative way of saying a very large number of people. So we don't know exactly how many there are, but we know it's, it's enough 
that nobody's going to be able to kind of stand up on a mountain and go one, two, three, four, five, and, and number them. They're not going to be able to count them. And they're going to come from all over the earth. Okay? Now, obviously the intent here is, is on battle. And he uses that phrase, Gog and Magog, again. And, and without going over that entire conversation that we, we did, you know, back several months ago, uh, we talked about the Gog and Magog passages, and, and, and the, the, there's a variety of opinions over when that battle takes place. Some, the, the two that carry the most weight is it's the same as the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation, and, or it's right here. It happens, like, you know, at, right after the millennium when Satan is released. There is a third opinion that we kind of adopted, you know, at least I adopted, that I really like and a lot of scholars have kind of moved to, and it's basically that Gog and Magog is kind of a term that is used for Satan's battle against God, and it's basically, there's two parts to it. it, it first part is before, you know, the, the millennial kingdom at the end of the tribulation, and Satan gets defeated, and the moment he's released at the end of the millennium, he picks up right on the battle again. And we talked about how World War I and World War II were really kind of two prongs, two parts of the same war in a, in a great many ways. You know, and that's what seems to be happening here. He, he's defeated at, at, you know, going into the millennium, at the end of the tribulation, and as soon as he's released, man, the first thing he wants to do is he wants to go out and deceive the nations again, and I want to fight God again. And that's his mindset. Now, Every time I talk to somebody about this, the first thing they say is, but why would he do that? Doesn't he know? He got beat now a couple times by God. Why would he do it again? I can't, I, I mean, you know, I, I can't answer that question. The only thing I can say is the Bible says Satan is a liar and a murderer. And he's been that way from the beginning. And the first lie that, that, that he seems to have, you know, told was lying to himself that he could defeat God. At the very beginning, he convinced himself he could beat God. If he was that much of a liar then, I have no reason to think he won't be that much of a liar now and say, I can defeat God. Even after getting locked in a prison for a thousand years, you'd think that would be enough. But evidently, it hasn't been. You know, how many of you have ever read Dante's Inferno? Just as, a, as, as an interesting question. Anybody? All right, a couple of us. It's a great read. Uh, <laughs> Dante has an interesting perspective on Satan. Uh, you know, in, in his inferno, in his hell, Satan is trapped in ice and in, in, in a, a frozen pond, like up, a frozen lake up to about his waist. And the only reason he is trapped is because for eternity he flaps his wings trying to release himself. He just stubbornly is constantly fighting against God, fighting against his own fate, and he freezes the, the water that he is frozen in constantly. I, I love that just because, again, it's, you know, Dante's not trying to say this is what's real. He's just pointing to the nature of Satan. That is his nature, to lie and to rebel and to kill. It's not a nature he was given at his creation, but it is what he became by his own choice. And he seems to be that till the end. And that's the best I can tell you. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's the best I, I've got. His nature is to rebel against God, and he rebels against God even to the end, even after a thousand years being locked in a prison. 
and he goes to battle. Now, again, the numbers of the troops, uh, you know, though we can't pinpoint an exact number, it clearly points out that this is a lot of people. Tons of people from all over the world are gathered together by Satan to rebel against God. He has a big following. That doesn't mean there's not a bigger following that follow Christ. We don't know the numbers on the earth. That's probably like the sand of the sea too. You know, so we don't really kind of know how that, is this the majority of people that rebel against Christ? Is it a minority of people that rebel against Christ? We don't know. That's just things that we do not know. What the Bible clearly points out is that there will be a number large enough that nobody can sit and count them, you know, that are going to rebel. It's going to be a big number of people. May not be a majority, but it's going to be a big number. Now, I I don't know exactly where they estimate the, the earth's population right now. I think it, last I heard, I think it was over 6 billion, but I think it's more than that now, something like maybe 7 billion plus. You know, and that's just an estimate. Again, no, it, it, that's, that's a good actually picture of it because nobody sits and actually counts them all. You know, they put population figures that they know together and the best they can come up with is somewhere over seven, seven billion. So those are big numbers. I, I, you know, anytime you get up that high, you're talking like, you know, that's sand of the seashore type numbers. So, you know, if, if three billion got in one side and four billion got in another, you know, the three billion might be a minority, but that's still, you know, that's huge numbers. So we don't really know what we're looking at here. It could be a minority of people, but it could still be a huge number. And they, they, they choose to follow Satan and, and, and rebel against Christ uh, and join Satan's army to, you know, to, to try to destroy God and his people. Now, it says they, uh, in verse 9, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Now, this brings about the question, does that mean all God's people live in Jerusalem? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means that's the camp of God's people. That is the home, that's the capital city, essentially, of the Messiah. That is where Christ is at. That is where those who are ruling with Christ are at. That's the center of his government. You you know, if you're Satan and you're going to defeat Christ, It's Jerusalem you've got to get. That is the home for God's people. That is like the center place. You know, it's, you know, again, my mind goes back to history, you know, to to Napoleon and his attempt to, you know, to, to capture, you know, Moscow and the disaster of that attempt, you know, repeated later by, by Hitler. Uh, you know, and, and it, the idea is if you're going to get those people, you have to strike at the heart of those people, which is their capital, which is, is both their political and their spiritual center. Strike there, win there, defeat them. That's the idea. And that seems, that, that's been the idea for mankind with battles for, you know, as long as mankind's been fighting battles. And that seems to be the idea here. This is the home for God's people. It doesn't mean all God's people live there. You know, they're probably spread out all over the face of the earth too. But where's their camp? Where's their capital? It's where Christ is. That's the heart of it. And if you can defeat that, if you can defeat Christ, then you can win. That's Satan's mindset. And so he gathers them all together to go make battle against Jerusalem just like we saw earlier. 
However, this is different. It, you know, before we saw Christ comes and we just the, the, the breath, the, the word of his mouth, the breath of his mouth, he destroys. It seems that there will be actual fighting the first time. But then Christ will come and rescue you know, the Jewish people and he will just with the breath of his mouth will destroy his enemies. Here, it doesn't even go that far. You know, it, 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 doesn't, even, it doesn't even go that far. It says in verse 9, they, they march across the breadth of the earth, surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. <coughs> God lets them start getting there, and when all the armies get there and they're ready to attack, he just firebombs them from heaven. Doesn't get any further than that. No battle, nothing takes place. They just gather together and God destroys them all. You know, not even a fight. And, by the way, he captures Satan. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So he destroys the armies that Satan managed to bring together. And then he takes Satan and he throws him into the lake of fire, the same place that the, the, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet have been for the last thousand years. And he throws Satan in there with them. That is their judgment, that for eternity they will be tormented in the lake of fire. I don't know what that means, the extent of that, so don't, you know, I know that's the next question everybody always has. What does that mean, they'll be tormented for eternity? I, I can't answer that for you. Don't know what that looks like. I just know it's not good. <laughs> you know, it's not good. It's, it's, it's eternity in heaven or in, in hell for Satan and the beast and, and the false prophet. And it will be torment, whether it will be, you know, be physical torture, whether it will be mental torture, whether it will be both. I, I don't know what it all looks like. I just know it's really bad. It's really bad, okay? And, and you know, it, 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 it will be eternity tormented uh, for these three ringleaders of this rebellion against Christ. Let's look at, uh, oh boy, got six minutes. Let's look at uh, verses 11 through 5, or through 15. Yeah, Luke 5, through 5. It said, and I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead uh, that were in it, and, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. An, uh, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. All right. Obviously, we will not get to finish this all today, but we'll, we'll get started on it, okay? Here we see what we, we've come to call the, 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 the white throne judgment, the great white throne judgment. Um, you know, he said he saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now, the first question is, who is seated on it? Well, there are passages in the Bible that talk about Jesus as the judge. 
There are also passages that talk about God the Father as the judge. What some scholars believe is the likelihood is, is, is that those passages are all kind of meant to point to it's the Godhead who will sit as judge. You know, probably Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will, will together be judging the, the world. Uh, you know, and, 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 you know, that's probably the best we've got. You know, some would argue for specifically just Jesus. Some would argue specifically for just God. I don't really see any need to argue over it because the, the three are one. Uh, and, and if anything, the, you know, the multitude of passages that talk about, uh, you know, God sitting as judge and Christ sitting of judge, as judge seem to point to the fact that, that the Godhead sits as judge. Um, and and they, will, they will judge the lost. This is... Uh, what we talked about here a few weeks ago as the second um, resurrection, the second death. Uh, you know, th- there are no believers in this judgment. No believers in this resurrection. This is all on believers. And this is a judgment only for punishment, for eternal damnation. That is the only thing that's going on in this judgment. Okay? Believers are, are judged in, in what has come to be called the Bema seat judgment. Um, the timing of that, and this is kind of where we'll leave off for this week, and then we'll pick the rest of this up next week. The timing of the Bema seat uh, is, again, another one that's kind of hotly debated depending upon, upon people's view of, of uh, you know, of the rest of the things in, in end-time studies of when the Bema Seat happened. People from a premillennial, pre-tribulational view most take the, 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 the opinion that the Bema Seat judgment happens right after the rapture. When Christ comes to, to take his church and takes his church back to heaven, that, that in heaven, you know, that is kind of where God does his judgment of believers. And the judgment of believers is not you know, are you going to be saved or not? Because they're all believers. They're all saved. The judgment of believers is for, for their works, for what they have done for Christ. It's a judgment for reward. And, and that seems to fit best for kind of the, that, that marriage of, 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 you know, of the lamb, okay? Uh, and, and Christ coming for, for his bride. It's kind of part of his, uh, his marriage ceremony, I guess you would say. Um, so, you know, that's kind of what people refer to as, as, the, uh, as the Bema, uh, the Bema seat. Let me uh, kind of read something to you here from the New American Commentary. It, it's just a brief kind of description of that. The judgment of believers is, is referred to as the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema. Uh, that judgment is either uh, referenced or explained in Romans 14:10, 2 Corinthians 5:10, and 1 Corinthians 3:10 through 15. Only believers appear at the bema, and its description is distinct. In other words, it has a very different description from the white throne uh, judgment. So you know there there seems to pretty clearly be two judgment seats taught in the New Testament. One, the judgment of, of God's people, of, of believers, and this is a judgment, again, not for, you know, not, not you know, hey, you're, you go, do you go to hell or, or heaven? 
they're all going to heaven. You know, this is a judgment only for what are their, are their rewards. You know, what, since they came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, what have they done for Christ? How have they used the gifts that God gave them? And they will be rewarded for that. And the Bible talks in many places about the crowns that, that believers will get someday from, from God uh, for the various different, different works that, that they do for Christ. And, and as we've talked about before, the Bible says you're not saved by works, but you are saved for works. You're saved by faith, but you are saved for good works. That's what God wants us to do. God, you know, God does not want Sunday-only Christians. In fact, there's a great debate whether that even exists. You know, God wants Christians who live their faith each and every day. It doesn't mean you're perfect. You have, you have a sin nature. You will not live a life of perfection. But God wants committed believers who have given their heart to him completely and are living for him every day. That's what he wants from us. He wants us to, to do the good works of, 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 of the redeemed. You know, and you remember back when we talked about Christ coming for his bride it says she's dressed in, in, in white, and, and her garment was her works. You know, the, 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 the garment that the church, God's people, essentially are clothed in is their good works. It's the thing that shows that they are the bride of Christ, that this is who they really are. So that is what takes place at the Bema Seed. It's God's reward to his people. Now, you know, that doesn't mean... By the way, you know, if, if, you, if you look at, at, at kind of uh, some of the things that are taking place there, he says, you know, some works are, are pretty much burnt up by the time God makes his judgment, you know, and they're kind of saved by the skin of their teeth. They're saved, but they didn't really do a whole lot for Christ, you know, and so it, it doesn't mean everybody gets, you know, is going to be the same thing. Uh, you know, there, there's going to be people who are, are truly believers, but, you know, they didn't necessarily live the greatest life for Christ, but they are going to be saved, the Bible says. But then there will be others who truly, you know, they gave their heart to, to Christ and they lived that way consistently throughout their life. And, and they, of course, will get more rewards for what they have done. And that is, is you know, basically what the Bema seat is. Um, but this that we're talking about now here in Revelation, this is the great white throne judgment. So one judgment for the saved, just to, you know, in order to, for them to get the, you know, the, the rewards that they deserve because of their works for Christ. One judgment for the lost. And, and, and you notice that there's two books involved here. One is the book of life and one is the book that records their works, why they're guilty. I'll leave you with that. We're going to talk, we'll start there next, next week. We'll talk about how God uses these books. No one is going to be able to stay, say to God that day, hey, whoa, 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 you got it wrong, God. Nobody's going to get up, stand up in court and say, hey, you misjudged me. Because God's got the books right there. And he's able to say, hey, wait a minute, look, here's why you deserve eternity in hell. And I can look at this book and your name's not written in the book of life, which is where all of, of the believers in Christ. Because the reality is we all, if it was only on judgment in the first book, we'd all go to hell. Because we're all sinners. But because our names are in the book of life means we don't go to hell. Christ's sins covered our 
you know, Christ's death, I mean, covered our sin. His blood covered our sin. And we put our faith there. So, you know, our names are in that book. But they're not going to be able to say that. You know, so we'll, we'll talk more about that next week. Let's close in a, in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for your word. I, I thank you for uh, loving us enough to give us your word. It is difficult for us at times, Father. It's difficult for us to understand it. But I, th- I truly believe you want us to, to work for that understanding. You want us to, to try to know you, to, to desire to know you more and to dig into what you have to say to us. So help us to be that as people. Help us to be people committed to your word that, that are just trying to get to know you better and better. Father, thank you for the great blessings that you give, so much more than we deserve. Thank you for it all, Father, and we just praise you and glorify you today, and we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Next week, think about, read those passages over again, and just, you know, think about, especially verses 11 through 15.